You are listening to the Hippie Haven podcast. I'm Callie, a zero waste activist and public speaker, creator of Bestowed Essentials, a line of eco-friendly home and body products, owner of Hippie Haven Shop, the first refill store in South Dakota, and of course, host of this Hippie Haven podcast. If you're new here, I release an episode every Wednesday, which you can get instantly downloaded to your phone for easy listening by subscribing to this podcast on any of the major podcasting apps. The show notes and full transcript for every episode are available on my website, hippiehavenpodcast.com. You can also learn more about me on the website or by following along on Instagram at hippiehavenshop. This episode is part of my Live Your Best Life series, as we start off 2020 doing the internal work to be our best selves so that we can then do more impactful external work to help others and the environment. My guest today is Michelle Dickinson, a passionate mental health advocate, a TED speaker, and published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. After years of playing the role of child caregiver, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. Her memoir offers a rare glimpse into a young girl's experience living with and loving her bipolar mother. Michelle then spent years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace at a Fortune 500 company by elevating compassion, causing more open conversations, and leading real change in how mental illness is understood in the corporate setting. She also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with a mental illness after experiencing her own depression due to challenging life events of her own. As a past volunteer with court-appointed special advocates, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and serving as big sister with the Big Brothers Big Sisters organization, elevating the well-being of our youth matters to her. Michelle's volunteer work led her to create her own children's program called Perfect, Just the Way You Are. This program was designed to help youth better understand how to nourish the body and the mind and has reached over 2,000 children and their families in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania in the last five years. The program recently evolved into a school-wide and student-led mental health wellness fair. Michelle's intentions are to touch as many children's lives as possible with this program so that children proactively develop a healthy relationship to brain health. In today's episode, we're talking about how to reduce the stigma around mental health, how to create more compassion in today's society, how to improve the collective mindset around mental health in your workplace, the economic benefits of investing in mental health resources, and Michelle's advice to those affected by mental illness. Let's get into today's episode. How did you discover your calling as a mental health advocate? So for me, I uh, did not expect to become a mental health advocate at all. I just got very connected to uh, my story when I told it for the first time on the TED stage. And the reaction to that story, to me, just sharing what my experience was like growing up with my bipolar mom was a bit overwhelming and kind of pushed me in the direction to write the book because I wanted people to have compassion and empathy for those with a mental illness. And I wanted them to see and, and understand the human side of loving someone with a mental illness. And, uh, before I, before I knew it, I hear I am writing a book and then I have this book and this book is causing change just because it's like my story and it gave people permission to connect to it and share their story. So I thought I could use this to make a real difference and, that's where I found the greatest amount of fulfillment. And can you share more about your own experiences with mental health? 
Well, you know, I never thought I would deal with mental illness myself, you know, growing up with my bipolar mom and being adopted, I thought this is something that just affected her. Uh, it affected the family, but I would never have to experience it. And it really wasn't until two years ago when I started to deal with a major life event that I started to deal with my own depression and, um, didn't hesitate to get help and got the help that I needed and then had to deal with sort of living with depression and trying to navigate life and trying to do my job and trying to be social when I didn't want to be. So um, it was challenging for sure, but um, I'm very grateful for therapy because it helped me navigate um, a life event. And it really just reminded me that nobody is immune to mental illness, regardless of your your family's history. Life can, can knock any one of us down uh, for the count. So, yeah. And I'd, I'd love to dive right into the main focus of your work. What can we as individuals do to reduce the stigma around mental health? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest mistake that that we all make is we feel like we have to be clinicians when we ask someone how they're doing. And it it's as basic as, as hum, human connection to one another. You know, as much as we're connected, looking at our devices, looking at our computers all the time, um, we're disconnected from one another. So I think, you know, if we could pause ourselves, really look at one another in the eyes and ask them if they're okay without feeling a burden to fix it and really just being with them and listening to them, connecting with them, having them feel heard. There could be so much, so much more openness around this conversation of mental health. Uh, and we could shift the way people look at it. You know, fundamentally it's just the brain and, you know, the brain is another organ and sometimes it needs support. So if we stop avoiding the conversation, have the courage to have the conversation and not feel this obligation to have to fix things, we can make a big difference. What advice do you have on starting that conversation with somebody? You know, I think it all starts with being willing to be vulnerable about how life shows up for you. And I'm not saying to tell the world. What I'm saying is find someone that you could trust, someone that you could have a conversation with, a relatedness with, and have the courage to go first. Have the courage to say, you know, I dealt with a lot of stress, or I know what it feels like to have anxiety, or, you know, something that that humanizes your experience really opens the door for other people to feel like it's okay to be themselves and talk about it. How do you think that we can create more compassion in today's society? It's a great question. I think um, I mentioned a little, a moment ago about how disconnected we are from each other, eyeball to eyeball, and how connected we are to, you know, social media platforms. You know, compassion starts with connection. Empathy starts with knowledge and understanding and also being willing to look at our own biases that we don't even realize we have. So if you grow up and your relationship to mental illness is that it, you know, like me, 
um, it's debilitating to witness someone you love have a mental illness versus someone who has never had any impact of mental illness in their life. And all they know is what they see in the media. I think we all need to reflect and say, why do we see things the way we see things? Why is our lens on something the way it is? And really check our own biases and educate ourselves and maybe read a few books or watch a few documentaries and get really under, get an understanding of mental illness yourself because when there's knowledge, there's power. And you have years of, of firsthand experience in cultivating change in the workplace. Can you tell me more about the work that you did with Johnson & Johnson? Sure, sure. I was uh, part of the leadership team that helped to create the fastest growing and largest uh, employee resource group within the company that went global uh, pretty rapidly in the first two years that it existed. And so there were resource groups of all different kinds, but this was the first one that was dedicated to eradicating stigma at work and having there be more open dialogue and more knowledge of resources and tools for those suffering with a mental illness while working, but also for those who are caring for a loved one with a mental illness. So it was really a lot of energy went behind causing open conversations, having people talk openly on the TED stage, having there be very visible events around World Mental Health Day, May Mental Health Awareness Month, to just really showcase that this company was really about being truly inclusive of people with invisible disabilities, just as, as they were with uh, physical disabilities. What mental health resources would you like to see more employees offer in an ideal world? Yeah, there's so many great resources available. I think it's really important that companies have policies, have a, first of all, have a remit that they're going to make their workplace more inclusive for invisible disabilities. So those people that suffer don't have to put their game face on every day, that they are well supported. And, you know, what does that look like? It means policies and procedures that back that remit. It means education of people leaders. That's like something I'm so passionate about. People leaders are the face of the company. Employees really feel about the company, how they feel about their direct supervisor. So if you have a, a leader that's empathetic and compassionate and will work with you and support you so that you can show up the best way that you can in the workplace, you know, there's loyalty that gets, that gets cultivated there and there's trust. So people leader manager uh, training is vital. Forums where employees can openly share their story if they so choose to. I think peer communities are absolutely brilliant. So most organizations have a robust employee assistance program and benefits, but there's something else that can complement that, and that's uh, leveraging your own employees with lived experience in a peer structured community where employees can kind of go to a group of employees that they may or may not know who've navigated what they're going through and just they would represent hope and they would uh, help them navigate something that is unfamiliar and new. And so for any of my listeners who work for a company, which I would assume are quite a few, what advice would you have for them to approach their supervisors or the management about implementing more mental health resources within their workplace? 
Yeah, that's great. So I, um, I am on a mission to help empower people who want to bring change to their workplace. There's things that you can do. There's you know, conversations that you can have. You can engage leaders in what it means to create more compassion, more loyalty, more trust. You could propose suggestions. Like I think one of the easiest and the greatest things companies can do is allow their employees to create a mental health employee resource group. Because that is voluntary and employees will band together organically and you'll see the culture start to shift because it'll be a more open dialogue. And that's self-sufficient in terms of like you have employees doing this at the at like the you know, the grassroots level kind of thing. And so that is a great entry point. But then if a, if a company wants to do more, I think educating leaders and what's possible, what trainings are available what activities they could introduce into the workplace. There's a whole host of things. If you go to my website, michelledickinson.com, and you clicked on programs, I have, uh, you know, five steps to cultivating a culture of compassion, ways that, that employees can almost like encourage leaders to adopt some of these things that will really help shift how mental illness is received in their workplace. And going back for a second to my prior question, um, what mental health resources in an ideal world would you like to see in schools and universities? There's, there are so many great um, initiatives going going on. I mean, for kids, there's uh, campus activities. There's campus initiatives taking place so college students can come together in a group that is specifically for kids that struggle with mental illness and support one another. So those those happening at the college level are, are so important. But, you know, where I like to focus are the middle school kids because the middle school kids are, are at that sh- that moment where they're they're shaping their skills and their resilience and they can gain some really insightful and, and beneficial uh, tools so they can navigate dealing with adolescents, dealing with testing, preparing themselves for high school. There, there are many programs out there. Unfortunately, we haven't reached the space where mental health is as equally as important as physical health when you teach uh, students health in schools, but we're getting there. I think state by state, it's trying to become more normalized that health class includes mental well-being. I happen to have a wellness program that I love to introduce to middle school kids. It's really all around giving them tools and and resources to deal with the stresses and the anxiety of being a kid in, you know, in a social media driven world and, you know, how to navigate that and how to love yourself and how to celebrate individuality and have empathy for one another and just love yourself. You know, that's something that I'm doing in middle schools that I love to see grow um, and reach more kids. I think that unfortunately, in addition to the social stigma around mental health and mental illnesses, there's also pushback when it comes to mental health resources because it costs money. So Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share what are the economic benefits of investing in mental health resources? My goodness, it's it's amazing. So when you look at um, when you look at the workplace, for example, like the corporate setting, it's Seriously, people don't realize this. They pay disability expenses of their employees, but they don't realize that mental disorders are the single most expensive category of health costs 
uh, for many employers. It's like 17 billion U.S. dollars is lost annually in productivity because of unaddressed mental health concerns. And, you know, you laugh about it. People say, I'm going to take a mental health day. You know, in reality, I don't know how many people feel comfortable saying I'm going to take a mental health day or how many people say I have a stomach ache when really they're just overwhelmed and they do need a mental health day. So it's just this miscategorization fundamentally of how we even disclose how we're feeling. It's a very real thing. When you talk about cost, research actually does show that for every dollar that an employer invests in mental health in the workplace, it has a three to five dollar return on investment. So if you could if you could educate a people leader how to have empathy, compassion, and foster trust, you have a highly engaged and connected and committed employee right there. So if you invest money in your people leaders to have them be the best that they can be in terms of leading people with all kinds of abilities, you know, right there, you're keeping an employee at work, you're avoiding absenteeism, you're keeping them engaged, you're avoiding turnover, all of these factors play in. So it's really to the advantage of the organization to, to look and, and say, what is it that we can do to elevate our well-being mentally of our employees? Now, I was really surprised to learn from, from one of the emails that you sent me that half of all mental illnesses begin by the age of 14. Yeah. So how can we approach conversations about mental health with the teenagers in our lives? I think it starts, right? So as adults, um, what we're trying to do for the adult populations is reverse the stigma. And I think with our youth, we could actually raise a generation that has a healthy relationship to brain health. So it's not something that has to be altered later on. It's something that they feel comfortable speaking about. It's something they feel comfortable raising their hand and saying, hey, you know what? I'm not quite right. It all starts with our own relationship to mental health as parents. I think if we could humanize and normalize it in the home and start talking about it more openly, you know, kids won't isolate themselves. They won't suppress their feelings. They'll be more liable to say, hey, you know what, mom, I don't feel so good. Or I recognize my my friend in class has been like really sad lately and I don't know what to do, but I'm worried about her. So I think we as adults set the tone. If we look the other way and we ignore any type of a mental illness in our families and ourselves, then we we show them through our example whether or not we we want to admit it, but we do. You mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and then of course it's the topic of your memoir, that you grew up with a bipolar mother. What advice do you have for those who are caregivers of someone with a mental illness? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and I feel so blessed to have so many of my readers reach out to me and talk to me about this. You know, caregiving is, I think, one of the hardest things that we do and we don't necessarily have a choice. Like I didn't have a choice. That was my normal as a little girl. My mom had bipolar. She needed to be looked after. The family rallied around her and I did what I had to do. But it's punishing. As I grew older, it was a very punishing experience to try to love her and to try to support her because I just wanted to give and give and give and just I was I would watch myself just get depleted and get depleted and no amount of effort was ever going to be enough. And until I went to a therapist, I didn't have boundaries. I would get lost in caring for her and 
my own well-being would suffer. So my advice to caregivers is you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you can help someone else. So don't get lost in caring for them. It doesn't mean that you're less than a loving, compassionate person to take care of yourself, to get the yoga class in, to go for a walk, to eat well. It just means you're going to be in a much more stable place to be able to give them the kind of care that you really want to give them. What are your highest recommended resources for anyone who's affected by mental illness? There's a couple of really great ones that I uh, I want to share. You know, obviously you have the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's uh, NAMI, and you can go to their website. They have tremendous programs and offerings and education. I think if you have if you suspect someone that you love is dealing with something, go there, get the signs and symptoms, get the recommendations, learn about your local support group. Uh, get connected to your local community. Don't go it alone. That would be my first bit of recommendation. The second is a really cool online peer-to-peer community for those who are navigating any kind of brain health challenge from depression to bipolar to eating disorder to any kind of kind of a mental illness. And that's called 18%. It's a free peer-to-peer community. It's on uh, a Slack community. Basically, you go to www18, the number, and then percent, all written out, org. And it's free. It's anonymous. You can download it. You can have it on your phone. If you need to talk to someone who maybe has navigated the road ahead of you, say you just get a diagnosis and you don't know what to do or who to talk to, it's a great tool to have at your fingertips. So just keep talking. And when I say keep talking, I think talking is the best thing that you can do when you're dealing with something because it's far less scary to be in your head than it is to be talking to someone about it. So when you talk about it, it kind of reduces how scary and intimidating it can be to try to figure it all out on your own. This is amazing. I'm I'm on the website right now looking at it and we'll make sure to include a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, And it looks like the name 18% comes from the fact that 18.9% of Americans are living with mental illness, like such a great resource. It Um, really is. Yeah, it really, really is. And Michelle, where can we go to learn more about you and the work that you are doing? Sure. My uh, website that I mentioned earlier, you can learn all about me, my book, my programs that I'm offering for workplaces, for first responders, for children. And that is michellee.dickinson.com. And that's a wrap. I truly hope that you find this Live Your Best Life series beneficial. If you know someone who'd enjoy the Hippie Haven podcast, share it with them or on social media. If you post on Instagram, don't forget to tag and follow me at Hippie Haven Shop. This podcast is produced with the help of my community manager, Kelly, who also runs our Hippie Haven Facebook group. If you haven't joined that already, be sure to visit Facebook, search the Hippie Haven Facebook group, and join us. You can also support the work that we do by leaving a review for the podcast in whichever app you're using to listen, or you can buy us a virtual cup of coffee to keep us going. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Hippie Haven to support the work we do with just $4. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you have a great rest of your day.